When was the last time you cried? I mean, really cried. What was it for? Why did you cry? Fewer things, I think, are more human than tears. Think about it. This is probably the first thing you did when you came into this world, crying, crying and screaming. Crying is the sort of emotional response that we try to control more and more as we get older. So we use the phrase fighting back tears, holding back tears. But often, no matter how old we are, how mature we are, how in control we might think we are of our emotions, we can't help but to be overcome by tears and to weep. There's the sort of crying that comes from watching heartwarming videos on YouTube of soldiers returning home, of dogs cuddling up with kittens. There's the I'm not crying, you're crying sort of crying. You know what I'm talking about? But then there's a whole different sort of crying. There's a crying that is a response to deep, indescribable sadness. Sometimes we don't know what to say. All we can do is just cry. Cry to a situation, cry to a world that we know is not right. So we weep. By the way, men weep on average like this 10 times a year. Women, 50, according to some survey I saw. Who knows if it can be trusted? On Palm Sunday, we probably know about the palm branches. We know about the donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, welcoming Jesus. But one thing I think that's less known is that on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, yes, on a donkey, yes, with crowds shouting, Hosanna, yes, with palm branches being waved about. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem weeping. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem crying. Amidst all of this fanfare, amidst the festal shouts of joy, there's this contrast with Jesus on a donkey crying as he enters into Jerusalem. We know at least two times in Scripture that Jesus cried. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. He was grieving over that. And he cries here in the beginning of his last week as he enters into Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, our liturgy takes us on this dramatic journey to begin Holy Week. So there's a procession with palms that we all just went through here at the beginning of the service, this odd burst of joy and greeting King Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And the crowds, indeed, they're full of joy as Jesus is coming. They're wondering, is this the king that we want? Is this the king that we have been waiting for? But Jesus knows how this story goes. He knows that Friday is coming. So in our liturgy, we have this dramatic shift to prepare for Holy Week. Not just a triumphal procession with palms into the sanctuary, but we read the Passion that Rhett and Katrina just read for us. We move from palms to Passion here at the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not just in majesty, as we'll sing in a moment, but he rides into Jerusalem with deep mourning. A triumphant king, yes, whose triumph will be unveiled in a surprising and strange way, but a triumphant king who is weeping nonetheless. Why? Why is Jesus weeping? Well, we read it outside. Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. 
He says that Jerusalem, by which he also means Israel, has rejected the way of peace. This is a shorthand way of Jesus saying Jerusalem, Israel, his people have rejected the way that he has been offering them. They have failed to repent and choose the path that Jesus has been laying out for them. So Jerusalem, Jesus predicts on several occasions in the Gospels, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And again, this happens in A.D. 70. The Romans come in and they sack Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus laments. He weeps over his people Israel. But he doesn't just weep. He's not just weeping tears of sorrow. He won't just wring his hands about how things have gone wrong. Jesus, in this coming week, he comes not just to weep about sadness, but he comes to do something about sadness. In fact, he comes as the man of sorrows to do something about sorrow. Our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53, it actually sheds light on the mission of Jesus, not just for Holy Week, but actually the mission of Jesus' entire life, the mission of this one who weeps on Palm Sunday. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy. It's actually a song, a prophetic song about the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh who will come. The servant is this one that Isaiah sees who will come and finally deliver Israel, yes, but this servant will come and be a blessing to the entire world. And there's actually a drama in play in Isaiah 53. This isn't just boring poetry. Isaiah 53 is putting forth a dramatic scene for us. And just like any good drama, we have characters in Isaiah 53. We have the servant who is revealed by Yahweh the servant of the Lord. The servant is the Lord's servant. This servant will represent the master. This servant will carry out the master's interest in the world. And to obey the servant, as we'll see, is to obey the master. But the servant will take Israel and the world by surprise. So we read that many will be astonished at him. Many will be shocked at the servant, utterly surprised. He will startle The nations. This wasn't the servant of the Lord that we were expecting. But who is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah is prophesying about that will appear before the nations? We might expect someone powerful, someone royal, someone striking in appearance. But this servant will disappoint on all human levels. At some point, he'll even be hard to look at. Isaiah Prophesies. His appearance will be marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It'll be shameful to even look at this servant of the Lord. But even before this, the servant is this moment when the servant is beyond recognition, there wasn't anything particularly handsome in this servant. Isaiah 53.1, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was average, if not a bit below average. So we wonder what's so great about this servant who had nothing visibly to commend himself. Why is this servant so great, Isaiah? Why this grand prophecy about this servant of the Lord? There's the Lord, there's the Lord's servant. But then in this drama, Isaiah introduces another character, us. This is the we in that passage. Isaiah involves his hearers in this prophetic drama. We didn't desire him, 
Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, by humanity. We, in fact, hid our faces from him. We esteemed him not. We didn't think much of him to begin with. In fact, we esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted. Isaiah pulls those who hear this prophecy into the drama of the servant of the Lord. Who could the servant actually be? Who is it that fits the bill of this servant of the Lord? Who is the one revealed by the Lord? Who will shut the mouths of kings, Isaiah says, but at the same time will be despised by men. Jesus Christ says, referring to himself in Mark 8, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the arm of the Lord is revealed. Isaiah's prophecy, by the way, written centuries before Jesus comes on the scene, anticipates the coming servant, Jesus Christ, and the drama he will enact by giving his life for the sake of the world. Yet this servant, this servant Jesus, he comes in the most unexpected ways. He will come in humility. Though he was equal with God, our New Testament lesson tells us, he will take the form of what? Of a servant. But he will be the true servant of the Lord. Israel was supposed to be God's servant of the world for the sake of the world. Yet again and again, Israel failed in this mission. Now Jesus, the true and greater Israelite, the true and greater servant of Yahweh, comes to accomplish the Lord's purposes. And this servant comes to finally rescue Israel and the world. Even those who wouldn't look upon him, even those who esteemed him not, even those who esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. These are the folks that this servant comes for. He comes as a man of sorrows. He comes as a suffering servant. The servant is characterized in Isaiah 53 by griefs, by sorrow. But it's interesting, they're not necessarily his sorrows. This servant is taking on the sorrows of others onto himself. The servant takes onto himself voluntarily, it seems, all that mars humanity. Parents, if you've ever seen your children in lots of pain, I bet you thought before, I wish I could just take it from them onto myself. I want to bear that pain for them because I love them so much. However gruesome and excruciating it is, I will gladly take that pain from them. Jesus, the suffering servant, comes into a suffering world, a sorrowful world, a sinful world, to do what? To bear the pain of the world. This is what Jesus, our suffering servant, is doing. And I want to reflect, uh, reflect briefly on three ways that he bears our suffering. Jesus bears our sadness. The prophetic song uses 12 different words that all emphasize one angle, one experience of human suffering. We don't have time to go through all 12 words, but just a couple. Isaiah 53, verse 4, a man of what? A man of sorrows. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Jesus not only comes to identify with all that is sad and bad, he comes to somehow carry and bring all that's sad and bad onto himself. He was truly God, yes, but remember, he was truly man, is truly God, is truly man. He knew mental anguish, rejection, grief, sadness, loss, betrayal. He knew what it was like to cry out in agony. 
There's another word. Surely he was acquainted with all our griefs. Grief is the word actually for sickness and suffering. Jesus is acquainted with mental anguish, sorrow, but he's also acquainted with physical anguish, grief. There's an episode in the Gospels where Jesus, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he casts out demons. He's healing the sick. Folks are bringing the sick and those who are possessed by demons to Jesus to heal. And Matthew says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our infirmities. The suffering servant gets close to suffering. He meets us in our sadness. He bears it so that he can heal it. What do you do with your sadness? What do you do with your sadness? We all have to do something with the sadness that we carry around. How do you bear sadness? Do you tend to wallow in it with a sense of no hope, with kind of a looming sense of despair? Do you live with a cloud of gloom constantly over you? Or maybe you just try to escape it, try to ignore it. You try to self-medicate it in some way. How do you bear sadness? It's a question we all have to answer because we all experience sadness in one way or another. Christianity is realistic about the brokenness and suffering in the world. Jesus, in fact, he enters into such a world. He enters into sadness as a man of sorrows to bear our sadness. He rides into Jerusalem weeping over all of this brokenness, over the rejection of his own people. The season of Lent is a season of realism. There's unexplained suffering in the world. There's stage four cancer. There are families broken apart by addiction. There are children in this world who are hungry. Life is not always happy-clappy. Life so often looks a lot like Lent. In Lent, we have been following the suffering servant who enters into the mess of the world, our mess, who comes to carry our sorrows. And all of this is building up to the climax that we will experience this week, the climactic moment on Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, Jesus draws out the sadness and suffering of the world onto himself, and he bears it once for all so that we can look to him as the one who bears our sorrow, who bears our grief. He knows what it's like, and he's come to do something about it. What do you do? What do you do with your sadness? But Jesus also bears our shame. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is the shamed servant. He's despised. He's rejected. He's pushed to the utter margins of the world. He was the one from whom we, Isaiah tells us, hid our faces. Jesus enters into Jerusalem this holy week with this grand finale of shame. Shame on the cross. Where he's publicly, publicly shamed. Shame is a universal experience going back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It comes from those parts of our lives that we feel like we constantly have to hide, those parts of our lives that we feel like we constantly have to compensate for. It's the feeling that we're never quite being good enough. It's the fear that someone will find out the truth about us, (laughs) that they will discover that all along we are a fraud. Shame forces us into constant retreat and diversion. What do you do with your shame? In our triad small groups, so the small group approach that we've been 
uh, encouraging. One of the things that we're focusing on is telling our stories, how to tell our stories and hopefully a growing trust of Christian community, not in some overly introspective way, that's not the goal of this, but in a way that helps us even re-narrate our stories so that we can see God not just in the good, but even God's provision in the bad. But it's hard. It's hard to tell our stories because usually there are chapters we'd rather not tell. Often many chapters we'd rather not tell, we'd rather not anyone find out about. Because we all have embarrassing episodes that we'd like to hide. Shame. But Jesus bears not just all sorrow, he bears all shame. On the cross, Hebrews tells us, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus comes to bear your shame. He comes to bear our shame. Why? So that we can be free from it. So that we can tell our stories, even the shameful parts, no longer having to hide or be defined by shame. What do you do with your shame? Who bears your shame? But also, most importantly, most centrally, Jesus comes to bear our sin. Jesus on the cross, he is bearing our sin. Ultimately, suffering, sickness, sadness, and shame are a result of sin, a result of humanity's rebellion against God, God's good kingship. We rebelled against God's good kingship. Sin is not just something that we experience the effects of. It's actually something that we contribute to as well. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. It's universal. We've all turned astray to his own way. And listen to this. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. What's happening on Good Friday? What's happening on the cross? This is what's happening. Jesus is suffering in our place. He is our sin bearer. In Leviticus, as some of you know, this is increasingly my favorite book. There is a whole ritual of what's called a sin offering. When one realizes guilt, then there would be a confession of sin. The worshiper would bring a lamb to sacrifice as a guilt offering for sin, and the animal represents the sinner. Jesus like a lamb, led to sacrifice, as Isaiah tells us, to a sacrificial altar. He bears our sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be healed, so that we can have peace with God. But we are in danger increasingly of losing this category of sin, and it's one that we desperately need to recover. We don't naturally like to think of ourselves as those who have offended against some divine and holy laws and thus need to be made right with God, but this is exactly what the Bible is telling us again and again. Whatever deficiencies we might acknowledge in ourselves, we often just simply try to explain them away in therapeutic categories. But if we lose the gravity of sin, of our own sin, our own need for atonement, we actually diminish the work of the cross. Reinhold Niebuhr said famously last century, we will come to believe this, that God without wrath has brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
Understanding the depths of our sin, the gravity of sin, the gravity of sin in the world is the fundamental human problem. It's utterly important to understand what Jesus has come to do on the cross. The cross is a place where the suffering servant is our sin bearer. So I ask, to whom do you look to bear your sin? Do you pile it up on yourself? Do you, do you try to bear your own sin? Running around with constant guilt, maybe carrying all of this, this load of sin and trying to work hard to try to do something about it? Or maybe you expect others to be your sin bearer. Maybe you're constantly blaming others. Ultimately, you think it's their problem. It's a spouse's problem. It's a co-worker's problem. It's a child's problem. When we do this, when we resort to constantly blaming for our problems, we're actually making others our sin bearer. Holy Week, however, with all of its gravity, is good, good news. Because Jesus comes to be our sin bearer. We don't have to carry it around anymore. We can be completely free from it and free from the guilt that it brings. Free from blaming others. Free from carrying it ourselves. Jesus enters into Holy Week weeping. He's a suffering servant who comes to bear our sadness, our shame, and our sin. And it will all come at an incredibly great cost. He will be, as Isaiah prophesies, put to grief. That literally means he will be made sick when his soul, his life, makes an offering, a sin offering. Yet it's through his suffering and death, Isaiah tells us, that many will be accounted righteous. And even out of the anguish of Good Friday, the servant will see light again and be satisfied on Easter Day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.